our Father, as we come to your house, may we see your face and hear your voice. We joy in your presence and revel in your bountiful goodness to us. Feed us with your word and then with the bread and wine of your covenant table. Amen. Please be seated. If you'll turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, the sixth chapter. Verses 9 to 13. Then pray like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And now if you will turn to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4, 17 through 5, 2. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, but in the futility, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their other understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that is, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, in some ways, this is the greatest part of our worship. Coming before you in all of heaven, 
confessing our utter dependence upon you. That we do not have our daily bread without you. That we do not have any life spiritually apart from you. Our Father, all week long we are tempted. Tempted to say, look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. We want to appear to be self-made men before the world. Well, here in this part of our worship, we deny we deny that falsehood and we bow before you helpless bringing a token of what you have given us therefore declaring that all that we have comes from you our father we come with hearts of thanksgiving. The physical blessings you have given us are immeasurable. And Father, the blessings that you have given us in your own Son, Jesus Christ, they are beyond imagination. Our Father, we come in thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Our Father, we will be celebrating this day the great gifts that you have given us in our parents, especially in our mothers. Our Father, this is a biblical thing. This is a godly thing. We bow before you for the heritage that we have been given in godly parents. We bow before you in the heritage that you are giving our children as you have brought us as parents to yourself and you've changed us. Father, some in this room have started a new lineage as you have brought them to a faith their families previously did not know. Oh, Father, we thank you for the mothers of Christ Presbyterian Church, for the grandmothers of Christ Presbyterian Church. And as priests for them this morning, we pray that you would bless and bring health where health is needed, bring healing where healing is needed, bring faith where faith is needed. Father, we pray that the mothers and fathers of this congregation will raise up a generation in Fayette County, a generation such has not been seen previously. 
Oh, Father, we can only do that through the power of your word and the power of the Holy Spirit in our families. So we ask this. And now we pray that you would teach us from your word. John Sartell cannot teach so that it will make any difference in our lives. No one who stands behind this desk has that ability. And so we ask in complete dependence upon you that you will speak in the power of your Holy Spirit this morning. Change us, Father, maybe some of us for the first time, for the glory of Christ. Amen. Do you really care? Do you really care about sin in your life? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The modern evangelical, people like us, I think we ignore this part of the prayer more than any other. So we've got to ask, what does God mean? Well, first you must know that God does not tempt his people. In James 1.13, it's there on your scripture sheet. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So what was Jesus saying when he said, lead us not into temptation? Jesus was saying, you must understand the great danger of temptation and sin. As you come before God in prayer, you ought to pray for deliverance from temptation and sin. You must pray that God will keep you in times of temptation and preserve you from the evil one. But I dare say, as we stand publicly and say this prayer, very few of us, when we say those words, are praying with any fear about sin and temptation at all. We're saying those words without any real apprehension and understanding of the danger that temptation and sin brings to our lives. We should pray fearfully those words as someone who is in a great war, someone who is in a huge battle. In the late 90s, Spielberg produced a movie the most graphic movie that I've ever seen about the Second World War. The Saving of Private Ryan. It was so vivid, so graphically, that I've only seen it twice, and I do not care to see it again. The first 30 minutes of the movie, focused on the first wave, the invasion at Normandy, specifically Omaha Beach. And it was horrific. No one could be in the midst of that battle 
No one could be in the midst of the blood and gore of that battle and be apathetic about what was happening and be clueless to the danger. That is how Christians should say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Praying as a people who are in such a battle. All through Scripture, all through Scripture, God rebukes specific sins. In his people and commend specific righteousness in the lives of his people. In our call to worship, he was saying, my people will live differently. In Ephesians chapter four, he was saying, my people will live differently. And he specifically then described how they would live differently. Let's look at Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Don't walk as the world in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and given themselves to sensuality, to greed, to practice every kind of impurity. But now look, so he describes here's the world and here's the way the world lives. But look at verse 20. But that's not the way you learned Christ. Put off the old self. He says you put off the old self and you put on a different way of living. Look at verse 24. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, if you've done that, put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamorous and slander be put away from you. And he goes on throughout that chapter and into chapter 5 describing this great difference that will be seen in the life of the world, in the life of his people. There's this, all through Scripture, Old and New Testament, there is the rebuke of specific sin. How is it then in modern evangelical, in the modern evangelical church, we don't hear this from the pulpit. In the evangelical church as a whole, in our generation, has ignored this subject. We talk about grace. As if God really doesn't care about how we live. In these passages, God gets down into our everyday lives. Notice this. It's not these just great and heinous sins. Each of these sins are in all of our lives, all of us lie. All of us struggle with anger, hatred, hostility. All of us steal in some fashion. All of us use our tongue with gossip and bitter words and jealous words. All of us are guilty of sexual immorality and impurity. 
in, in the mountains where I used to live, the people, when he preached like this, would say, he's going to meddling now. Well, God reads scripture. God goes to meddling. He means to meddle with our lives. Some Christians sincerely think that God really does not take our daily sin seriously. And if God does it, why should we? We have a God who cared enough to send his son to die for us. Die for our sins. Yet we've convinced ourselves that God does not care about our easy life. Our casual sexual relationships, our homosexuality, our racism, our materialism. We've invented a God in the modern evangelical church who is quite comfortable with the sins of our daily lives. You can't find that in Scripture. That God does not exist. And look at us. For instance, what do we say about our casual sexual relationships today? And I'm not talking about just out in the world. I'm talking about in the evangelical church. People talk about, well, they're two consenting people. Two young people just doing what comes naturally. Nothing wrong with this. It's just where we are right now. No harm, no foul. The name of God is strangely absent from those remarks. And no scripture is quoted. When Jesus told us to pray, he said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do you know what evil is? When something horrific happens out there in the world, when 3,000 people are killed when, by, by a false religious zeal, we say, that's evil. We, we look at, at, at some horrific thing in the world. We look at what, we look at the slave camps in North Korea and we say, that's evil. God looks at our everyday lives, our lying, our cheating, our stealing, our bitterness, our jealousy. And he says, that's evil. And my people don't do that. Why does God care about our sin? That's a basic question. It's a good question. Why did Jesus say, pray, lead us not in temptation? We're asking God to do something about the sin in our lives. Why does God care? Let's give an answer to that. In Scripture, what word is used to describe God more than any other? More than any other word, what's used to describe God? It's not love. Love is not used more than this other word about God. The word used more than any other to describe God is holy. God's holy. Talks about that much more than talk about God being love. God's holy. God's holy. God's, what does the word holy mean? The Hebrew word holy is kodosh. And it means to cut, to separate. 
His holiness is described in scripture in two ways. You have God's majestic holiness. You, you see that in his glory. You see that in heaven. You see it in Isaiah 6. You see it in Revelation where sinless angels, not angels who are sinful, but sinless angels are in his presence and they cover their face before him. We sang of it this morning and crowned him with many crowns. Look at it. Look at your bulletin for a minute. Uh, in the second verse, the last two lines, no angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends his burning eye. Mystery so bright. In other words, he cannot even look upon the glory of God. That's God's transcendent holiness. It doesn't have anything to do with our sin. And even the angels tremble before that holiness. But there's another way that holiness is described in Scripture. Another term, another definition, and that is God's moral or ethical holiness. This refers to his moral perfection. This would teach that sin is alien to his very being. This is a holiness that Isaiah felt so profoundly and every other. Go to where God appears in Scripture. And you see men and angels responding to his transcendent holiness. But when men are met, when men and women are met with the moral holiness of God, their sin weighs down heavy. What was it Isaiah cried in Isaiah 6, 5? Woe to me! I am ruined. He's looking at God. He's in God's presence. He says, I'm dead. I'm ruined. Why? I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Wow. That was a man referring to God's moral holiness and what he felt in the presence of God. You ever felt that way? When's the last time? You looked at your own life and said, I'm ruined simply because of the sin in my life. My personal sin, understand this, my personal sin as I stand before God is like the stench of a foul waste piled in an elegant living room Hosting an afternoon tea. Imagine an elegant living room hosting an afternoon tea. And you take a pile, a huge pile, 10 foot high pile of human excrement and put it in the middle of it. That foul stench, that is how our sin is before God. And that's how we would feel if he would appear here right now in all of his glory. We would need a book on protocol. We would fall on our faces before his transcendent glory. But we would cry out, woe is me. I'm ruined. Why does God care about our sins? It's not first because it does harm to others. It's not 
First, because it does harm to us. It's first because our sin is alien to God. God hates it. God loathes it. What was it Jesus said? What was it Jesus said? Here's Jesus. And think about, you know, you ask going to Sunday school and say, what word do you think about when you think about love? What did Jesus say about sin? If your right eye, if your eye sins, pluck it out, lead you to sin, you pluck it out. If your right arm leads you to sin, you cut it off. God does not wink at our sins. He just doesn't, people. That's the theological foundation of saying. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is the number one foundation underneath, underpinning that part of the prayer. Lead us not to temptation because Father's sin is alien to you. You hate it. You loathe it. But then, quickly, we can look at this passage and see not only that we pray this because of God's holiness. But we pray this because our sin always, always damages others. Look at verse 25 of Ephesians 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. He said you live righteously because it will affect your neighbor. Look what he says about stealing. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with every, anyone in need. Instead of being a thief and taking from people, you actually give to people. You're a blessing. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, not only as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. In other words, he said, sin injures people. Listen to me. No sin. We want to say, I don't know how many alcoholics I've had say to me, you know, and really mean it, and think, well, this is my sin. It doesn't have anything to do with anyone else. Are you kidding? Are you blind? You've destroyed your family. But it's not just it's not just the alcoholic. There's no sin, there's no lie. There's no fit of jealousy. There's no coveting. That does not affect everyone around you. We want to say to the world, we want to say to our love, my sin doesn't affect you. This, you know, that sin doesn't affect anyone. I haven't done any harm to anyone with this sin. That is a lie. You can read, read scripture. You cannot sin. It's a double negative. You cannot sin and not affect others. You can't. It's impossible. I had a hard time with this message this week. I was forced to look back and 
Think about 45 years ago, 50 years ago. And how the sins that I committed then are still affecting people. No sin can be contained in a vacuum. That's why we ought to pray this. When we say, Father, don't hold my sins against my children. And God says back to us in Scripture, then change your way of life. Change your way of living. Our sin damages others. And the, but the, the, the good thing is, our righteousness is a blessing to others. Do you realize that when you speak, there's a verse in Proverbs, and it's all through Scripture, but especially Proverbs. I love this verse. That said that our words, the words we speak, the physical words we speak, can bring healing to people. How often do we pray in our prayers that someone would be healed? God says we can actually, we can actually bring healing to people by our words that show forgiveness, that show forth love, that show kindness, that show concern. Why do we care about our sins? Why should we care about our sins in our daily lives? Because God's holy. Because our sin affects others. It's impossible that it doesn't. And thirdly, and lastly, our sin, why should we care? Why should we pray that prayer? Because our sin invites evil to do even greater work in us. Look at Ephesians 4.27. And give no opportunity to the devil. When you sin, what do you do? You give opportunity to Satan. The NIV translates it, and do not give the devil a foothold. In the midst of, of a paragraph about lying and anger and stealing, Paul says, don't give the devil a foothold, because that's what you do in these everyday sins in your life. It gives Satan a place to stand. Just prior to World War II, the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain met with Hitler. And he went there with an olive branch. He went there and said, we'll let you, we'll let you, we'll give you these Germanic people that seem to want you to come into their country. And uh, we know you want to go there. We'll, we'll if, you, if it'll stop right there. And he came home. All of us have seen it. He came home waving. He was laughing. He was joyous. There'll be no war. Hitler was the one laughing. Chamberlain gave him a foothold in Europe. And from that foothold, he sent fighters and bombers and rockets against London. That's exactly what sin does in our lives. When we care little about our sin in our daily lives, we have given open rebellion against God a place to stand because that's what any sin is. When you give gossip a place to stand, anger, bitterness, resentment, a selfish lust, you've given a place to stand. 
I want to read two quotes to you and we're done. The first one is from William James, who wrote a well-known text, Principles in Psychology. Now listen to what he said. You should never do that. Teach you in seminary, tell Tyler. You don't read passages like this. Congregation can't understand it. Well, you all are smarter than that. I don't know what congregation they were talking about, but you all are smarter. We're smarter. Listen to this. This is William James. Could the young but realize how soon they will become mere walking bundles of habits? They would give more heed to their conduct while in a plastic state, a shapeable state. We're spinning our own fates, good or evil, and never to be undone. Every smallest stroke or virtue or vice leaves it ever, leaves it's ever so little scar. Mark, he goes on, the drunken Rip Van Winkle in Jefferson's play excuses himself for every fresh dereliction by saying, I won't count it this time. Well, he may not count it, but it's being counted nonetheless. Down among his nerve cells and fibers, the molecules are counting it, registering and storing it up to be used against him when the next temptation comes. Nothing we ever do in strict scientific literalness, is wiped out, end quote. What was he saying? No act, no sin, no matter how insignificant, is done in a vacuum. Each act is making us who we are. Cecilia Bach said it this way in her book on lying. It's easy to tell a lie but it's hard to tell only one. It becomes habitual. I'll close with a quote from the great preacher of a bygone day, F.B. Meyer. Quote, sometimes it seems rather terrible that a life should be blasted by one unholy act. And you may be disposed to pity the man and say that it is hard for him to be judged and crippled for the rest of his life by the passionate act of a few moments. But remember, that act is never alone. It sums up trains of unholy thought in which the man has been indulging and you do not judge him for one act, but for the process of which it is the result. The tree was eaten through before it crashed to the ground. Why do we pray? Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil, because God is holy. Our sin always affects others. And our sin gives evil a place to stand in our lives. Our hymn, very fitting. Rock of ages, cleft for me me the prayer of preparation gracious father i cannot come to you without sin but i can come to you without a broken and contrite heart too often i confess my transgression with a heart that is still loving to the sin i am confessing when i love my sin i am despising you who gave your son when i love my sin I'm despising your cross, O Christ. Father, crush my heart 
is the grace and love that flows from Calvary. The law tells me I am a sinner, but it is yet sacrifice. That shames me and breaks my heart. Bring tears to my confession and create within me a new desire for Christ, His holiness, and His grace. Amen. On Christ's cross, on